Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. This morning that we come to a, a passage of scripture, a, a text this morning that each of us that have any sort of church experience uh, have at some point in time heard preached and taught. I've preached this uh, text here in this pulpit. Many others have no doubt preached this message here in this church and uh, many of which probably to many of you in this congregation this morning. However, even though uh, all of us have heard this message preached, I do want to remind you that while each and every one of those that who uh, have visited this passage and have preached from its uh, preached from its verses, how each of us have taken what the Lord has given to us and preached it in some way, following the Lord's leadership. Amen. There's still much to be seen, much to be dealt with. Amen. As no one single passage in the Word of God is ever exhausted. Amen. In even the eons of time. Amen. But we come to this passage of Scripture and we realize that even though we've heard a multitude of verses, amen, uh, preached out of this passage and a multitude of messages, amen, the central truth of this passage is still the same and its importance to you and I this morning, amen, and this day is still just as vital as it ever has been. Amen. And so when we come to this passage, this morning, I will not be bringing you some new truth to where you can stand in all of my brilliance, amen, because I promise you there is none. However, I do simply want to remind us this morning of a simple truth that we find as the central theme of this passage of Scripture, and in doing so, not only do I want to preach this passage in its context to those that do not know the Lord, and I know that our numbers are down a little bit this morning, We've got people out of town. We've got people sick. We've got different things, amen, this morning. And I know most of you that I'm looking at today, I have, uh, I've heard from most of you, if not all of you, uh, some uh, testimony of salvation, uh, some personal uh, rec- uh, some personal acknowledgement that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. However, I'm also reminded this morning, amen, that not only uh, can I be fooled by someone's supposed testimony, Testimony. Amen. You can fool me. Amen. I can think that you're born again and you truly not me. Amen. That's happened over and over in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. People who have sat on the pews for year after year, Sunday after Sunday, decade after decade, have after a long last of hearing the gospel preached, give their heart finally and fully and truly to the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, amen. I want to preach the Word of God to you in a way that the Holy Ghost of God will take His Word and will draw you to Christ and convict your soul that you might be born again. And then also, I want to remind those of us that are saved, amen, even though we've heard this passage, amen, probably much like John 3:16, over and over again, that the Word of God, amen, that we use to appeal to sinners in their unbelief still has 
has a message for those of us that are born again and do believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in what his word has to say. So this morning I have a message both for the unsaved and for the saved and uh, we'll see more of that as we look for uh, uh, more into the message this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you I have a real short message this morning but I have a fairly, fairly lengthy introduction. Amen. And uh, so we may be here uh, this coming Sunday as well. Uh, maybe not this evening unless the Lord just leads us. But we're going to get uh, the message that the Lord wants. I, amen. I just prepare what he gives me and preaches as long as he tells me to. Amen. And sometimes it's shorter and sometimes it's longer and you like it when it's shorter and I'll be honest with you, I do too. Amen. But anyway, we're going to look at the text this morning. Amen. Before I begin to unfold some of the things that the Lord has given me, let me just remind you where we come in this passage of Scripture. Amen. We are entering into the uh, chapter, uh, really into the middle. We've already entered into the middle of Luke chapter number 16. We've just come across the uh, wonderful chapter number 15 with all of its wonderful truths uh, concerning that famous uh, parable of lost things that deals with the lost silver, the lost sheep, and the lost son. As Jesus enters into this uh, 16th chapter, he's already dealt with a myriad of things. He's given a parable of the unjust steward uh, between verse number 1 and verse number 13. He's given an answer to the Pharisees and their words to him in verse 14 through verse number 17. He has given a single verse on divorce in verse number 18. And now as we enter into verse number 19 through the rest of this chapter, he tells us the account that has been come known, become known as the story, the account, whatever you may want to call it, of the rich man and Lazarus. Amen. And so we understand that. The, the, the Bible here uh, gives us some thoughts this morning uh, concerning both heaven and hell and the eternal abode of two different men that are named in this passage. Amen. So as we come to this passage, we find truth that has uh, fallen from the lips of the lovely Lord Jesus concerning a rich man that is unnamed here in this passage of Scripture. And a beggar that is named in the name that has been given in the text is uh, the name Lazarus. That name means one who God helps. Amen. And I believe as we look in this passage, we can truly say, amen, that the Lord has helped him. Amen. And as we find his eternal destination, he surely has been helped. Amen. And I'll say this, those of us that are saved, we're going to the same place he is, and God surely has helped us. Amen. Amen. Thank God for the help of the gospel and saving faith. Amen. I'll say this as well this morning. Much debate has been sparked concerning these words that the Lord has given here in teaching uh, and this passage of Scripture. You have some that say that this is a made-up story, that this is a parable simply uh, created from the mind of the Lord to illustrate the difference between, uh, the, uh, the, between the eternal destinations of two men that could not be more opposite and to exalt the truth, amen, that you do not have to be of great means in order to go to heaven. I believe what the Lord is teaching here, amen, in this passage is among many other things, amen, that clearly, indelibly setting uh, no, uh, putting no question mark on the fact that you cannot and will not earn your way to heaven because if so, these roles would have been reversed. The rich man would be in heaven and Lazarus would 
would be in hell. Amen. But we do not see that. And so the Lord here uh, teaches us some great lessons concerning eternity in this passage of Scripture. But you have some that say that this is nothing more than a made-up parable from the mind of the Lord to teach these very important lessons. And then you have some that I believe most of us would probably fall into this camp, amen, that says that this is what many Bible commentators would call a history. In other words, this is a fact. This is a story that factually took place. That there really was on the scene of the history of this world a rich man. That is the rich man that Jesus is referring to in this passage of Scripture. And there was upon the sands of time a beggar named Lazarus. That was this Lazarus to whom Jesus refers in this moment in his life toward the end of his ministry. I believe I can say, but contrary to their views, I personally believe this to be a history. I believe this rich man was a real person. I believe the beggar Lazarus was a real person. I believe their lives unfolded exactly the way the text said that it did, and I believe their eternities unfolded exactly the way the text says that it did. Amen? I'll just tell you, amen, I'm a Bible believer from cover to cover, and I believe that Jesus meant what he said when he said what he did. The Word of God means what it says when it said what it does. Amen. And I just believe it wholeheartedly that when Jesus says there was a rich man, hallelujah, there was one. And when the Bible says there was a beggar named Lazarus, I believe there was one. Amen. I'll go a step further in saying this. I personally, you don't have to agree with me on this, but I personally believe that there is no reason why Jesus, and I'm not saying that he never did. I'm just saying as far as I see it, there would be no reason for Jesus to ever have to make up a parable. Amen. He is a God that stands outside of time. He has all of the history of mankind committed to memory. Why would he have to create a story of something that didn't happen when he could just pull from the history of mankind that none of us would ever know that even books do not contain the history, but he has a sovereign God. Amen. Knows what has happened from the very first day of the creation of this world. And he knows everything that's going to happen, amen, all the way to the end of time and into eternity. There's no reason for him, amen, to have to make something up. He could just pull for something that he already knew happened, amen. I personally believe that when in a parable, when he says there was, amen, I believe there was, amen. But here we specifically know, amen, even if he did choose to allow his uh, other parables to be simply the creation of his uh, sovereign mind. Amen. We do know, amen, that this is a real account because Jesus in all of his parables never gave proper nouns, amen, in his parables. But here we find names given. We find the name of Lazarus. We find the name of Abraham, amen. And so I just personally believe that this is a real account. This is a history. And because it is a history, I believe it gives a greater weight to this passage to not know only to not only know that there is a heaven amen and there is a hell but to have an account amen from beyond the grave of two, of two men who are there amen went there all those years ago and still abide there this very morning amen so I believe what the Bible says amen this passage tells us very plainly that the rich man died and is spending forever in hell and Lazarus also died and 
is spending forever in heaven. The one speaking these words was more than capable of telling us where they are spending their eternities. Jesus, as the Son of God, had no need, amen, as I've said, to create a fictional truth, amen, concerning parables because he already knows what has taken place on this planet. The one who paid the sin debt upon Calvary so that all who desired to go to heaven through him could go. And the one, all of the, he's the one also that all of those that enter into hell's charred walls will have to reject in order to enter there. However, when we come to this passage of scripture, that gives us many thoughts and many truths that we form our understanding about the two and only two places of a man, woman, boy, or girl's eternal destination. Here in this passage, we find very few uh, details concerning the place where every person says they'll want to go, and that is heaven. Amen. Very few details in this passage of Scripture concerning heaven outside of the fact, amen, according to this passage that Lazarus, amen, in this pre-Calvary view of eternal destiny was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, a biblical term uh, for uh, paradise, amen, that existed in the heart of the earth at this time before Jesus' death, burial, and then eventual resurrection after his death where Jesus led captivity captive, took the saints out of paradise and brought them into the third heaven to dwell with our God for all of eternity. However, not only does it say that he was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom, that place of paradise, but then the only other detail mentioned about heaven in this passage of scripture is that heaven, amen, I'll say this is enough for me, amen, and heaven is a place that is a place of comfort for all who go there because Abraham said to the rich man in thy lifetime, thou receivest thy good things, amen, and Lazarus evil things, but now thou art tormented and he is comforted. So where Lazarus is, amen, uh, there it is a place of comfort. And aren't you glad this morning for those of us that know the Lord, amen, we're headed to a place of comfort one of these days, amen. This world's not that place and if that's the only detail of heaven that I had is that Jesus is there and it's a place of comfort, amen, that'd be enough for me to sign up to go and I'm glad that I did as an eight-year-old boy when I bowed my head and closed my eyes and told asked the Lord to have mercy upon me, a sinner, and to come into my heart and to be my Savior. Amen. I'm thankful that I'm headed to that place. And if you're saved, you ought to be just plum thankful and tickled to death. Amen. As the old timers you say tickled pink. Amen. About the fact that you get to go there and you don't have to go there. Amen. We ought to be thankful about that this morning. Amen. Amen. I'm thankful for that. In this passage of Scripture, though, while we find very few details concerning heaven in the Word of God, in this passage in particular, I say, we do find many details concerning the other place that individuals go when they die concerning hell. A place where all of those who reject Christ will eventually end up when they leave this world by way of death. I'll say this, this this morning, I was reading recently about an interaction that took place between two individuals and in a, this, this one individual who was a scoffer of what the Bible had to say 
uh, tried to trick this young convert who was witnessing to them uh, concerning uh, if they did not get saved that they would end up in hell. This person that was being witnessed to, this young convert was asked by this skeptic, skeptic a question that the skeptic thought would cause this young convert uh, to trip up and that the skeptic would be able to win the argument. And they said, well, if I'm going there, tell me, where is hell? Now, maybe some brighter, more uh, scholarly, more scholastic type of Christian who has been studying the Bible and and hearing, being in church and hearing preaching all of their life maybe would have been able uh, to give some more kind of an answer as to what the skeptic would have been looking for. But I do not think that anybody would ever be able to give a better answer, amen, a more accurate answer than the new convert did, the new convert, amen, very bashful and embarrassed at the fact that he did not know an exact location in his, in his mind, simply uttered a prayer to the Lord asking God for his help to give the answer and God gave him the answer where he said the skeptic said where is hell and the new convert said this at the end of a Christless eternity if you are not saved this morning, amen, you will find this place that I'll preach on this morning at the end of your Christless eternity. If you have any hope of going to that place of comfort and bliss, amen, where Jesus is and where Lazarus is here in this text, you will have to accept Christ into your life, amen, and so you will die with Christ rather than without Him, amen. This morning as I think about all of those that will one day uh, meet the end of a Christless eternity. I could not help but think about this passage of scripture earlier this week as I was making preparations concerning our missions month to come. And I could not think of a better message, amen, to share with those, with share with this congregation on the need for our church to not only continue to support missions and be involved in missions, amen, which is simply reaching the lost with the gospel than taking this passage of scripture going to what the Bible says about the place where the world will go if we do not uh, as, a, as a body of believers across this world become more important in God's mission of reaching sinners with the truth and this morning with what time I have I'll at least begin to preach on this subject maybe even next Sunday as well as we enter into our missions month of August on this subject the major Motivation for missions. The major motivation for missions. I'll say this this morning. I'm going to give you the main crux of the message in one simple statement. You say, preacher, what is the main motivation for missions? This scene that we've read in our text. That's why we should be motivated to be involved in personal, the personal mission of soul winning. That's why you and I should be motivated as the children of God. Amen. Even though we may be just middle class or less. Amen. Even though we may be, we may have meager means at times. You and I as the people of God ought to be motivated to give financially into the missions program of this local church. Amen. Into God's work across the world through your local 
local church. Amen. Because when you give to missions, that means that there is somebody that is being sent somewhere where there are sinners. Amen. That need this truth or they too will be just like this rich man in this passage regardless of their financial situation. I'm telling you, amen, I believe that the major motivation to missions, the fact that there is a hell that is still very real and still very hot and still very horrid, amen, is the major motivation as to why any of us should be involved personally in missions and soul winning, financially, amen, through a continuous giving, amen, and then prospectively to do whatever God leads to do with missions in the future of our church, amen, because of what the Bible says here in Luke chapter number 16. So as we look at this this morning, like I said, I've got a more lengthy introduction than I do a message. Y'all be surprised, amen, how short the message is gonna be. But the introduction, let me begin with this. Allow me to begin this morning to first of all mention from this passage uh, a thought on the way this rich man went to hell. Notice how he went to hell or the way that he went to hell. Notice, let me say this, that this man, and I know this is going to be something that some of you may be willing to disagree with right off the bat, but allow me to make my case for just a moment. This man went to hell from this text. Amen. I don't know anything about this man other than this text, but he went to hell relatively virtuous. You say, preacher, how can you say that? I've heard so many horrid things about this rich man. I'll say if you heard a bunch of horrid things about this rich man, you did not read them out of this text. You heard someone who took something out of this text and embellished upon it. Notice what the Bible says here in verse number 19. All we find as far as what we would consider an indictment of this rich man, number one is the fact that he was rich. He was a certain rich man. Let me ask you this. Is the fact that this man is rich any reason why he deserves to go to hell? I'll say this. <laughs> I'd love for God to send some rich people into Beacon Baptist Church. Amen. Remember, I'm talking about major motivation for missions. Amen. Giving to missions. Amen. When you love for somebody. Amen. That amen annually makes a couple million dollars to give tithe off of that. And then to give, amen, um, to missions off of that. Amen. There's no telling what our little church could do. Amen. If we had just a couple of millionaires come in, sit down on the, on the seats. Amen. Hey man, that'd be a blessing. I ain't going to turn him out of the church, amen. I'm not going to turn a pauper out of the church, and I'm definitely not going to turn anybody out of the church that, amen, uh, amen, has some uh, substance about them as well, amen. But the Bible does say that he was rich. But then the Bible also gives us some description of how rich he was. The Bible said he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Both of those are expressions of his, uh, of his luxury of life. They were expressions of the uh, splendid way and the extravagant way and the expensive way in which he lived. In this particular time, purple color was a very hard color to come by. There was a tedious process involved to create the color purple. Amen. And, uh, and also Amen. This was something that took much time to make and to have a drop of purple. 
took a lot of time and effort. But to have garments of purple. And the way the text reads, it doesn't lead me to believe that every once in a while he was clothed in purple and fine linen. It seems like this was the majority of his wardrobe. If you saw him, you recognized him for purple and fine linen. The fine linen would not be purple. It would be a white linen, but also very, very expensive. And so Jesus here not only characterizes him by his will, but also characterizes him by what he wears here in the text because what he wears uh, gives us a, uh, a description of how wealthy he was. But then the Bible also goes on to say this, that he fared sumptuously every day. And I have more comments that I want to make on that. But I believe as we read this passage, I don't think anybody in here would, dis would disagree with me. When it says fared sumptuously, that sounds like a pretty comfortable way to live. Amen. You may not know what the word fared or sumptuously means, but it sounds good together. Amen. Sounds like something you'd be interested in. And the Bible said he did it every day. But then as we go through the rest of this passage, you try to find me one clear-cut, one clear-cut condemnation of the way he lived. Amen. We can make our suppositions. We can make our embellishments. But I believe as we look at this passage of Scripture, and there is a multitude of Bible commentators that agreed uh, with me on this thought as I read behind other men and studied them, that this man would have lived, he lived a relatively normal life outside of the luxury that defined his life. Now, I understand that sometimes with luxury comes lewdness and with money comes a mess of trouble at times. Amen. But the Bible does not here tell us that that was the case and we must go with the Bible. Amen. If Jesus would have wanted us to understand how wicked this man was, he would have put it down for us in the Word of God. But I believe he wants us to understand something. Amen. Amen. As I've said before, I believe the central theme no matter what you have and no matter what you possess and no matter what life has brought into your way that does not earn you nor does it refuse from you. Amen. The destiny. Amen. The distinct end in eternity. Amen. That you could or maybe desire to have. Amen. This man was no more fitted to heaven because of what he had than Lazarus was fitted to hell for what he did not have. Amen. So we see that there's no mentions of him being an evil man although we typically, we typically at times paint him as such amen and I'll say this that on the road to hell there are multitudes of people that will die and go to hell relatively virtuous living lives that seem to not have very much at all that we could condemn or say evil about except for the fact that they did not know Christ and I believe in this text it probably tells us more about hell than any other single passage in the New Testament. I believe Jesus very pointedly leaves in the details that he wants to be left in because if this was a wicked rich man and he put it in the text, then there might be many that would create doctrines on that and say that this rich man went to hell because of how bad he was. Amen. Instead of who he did not know. Amen. He went to hell the way he went to hell. He went to hell relatively virtuous. But I'll say this as well. He went to hell religiously. You say, preacher, where do you see that? I think we see this in a multitude of verses here in the text. 
Look with me this morning at verse number 24. Look with me at verse number 20. I'm going to have to be done when I get through with these couple of things here. Amen. Y'all are too fun to preach to. Amen. Look at verse 24 with me. By the way, y'all get, y'all get, that's, that's what y'all are known for. Amen. When I have preachers come in, I have them tell me all the time, preacher, you should have told me there was that much liberty to preach here. Brother Demon, he said, he got mad at me. He said, preacher, I almost hurt myself preaching tonight. Amen. First time he came in back in September, a couple of years ago, he said, you should have told me there was that much water to swim in. I about hurt myself. Amen. And that, to your credit, that's echoed time and time again. And I hope by nobody greater than me. No, nobody tells you more than I do. Amen. Verse 24, look at it with me. We're talking about how he went to hell not only relatively virtuously, but he went to hell religiously. Look at verse 24. Now, verse 24, verse 23 tells us that this time the rich man has died. He's been buried and now he is in hell. In verse 24, the Bible says, and he cried and said, notice these words, Father Abraham. If this man would have been a Gentile, he never would have said those words. There are many Bible scholars that would even surmise as to say that they believe. Now, I don't know if I necessarily believe it, but there are many Bible commentators and scholars that will say that they believe this man very well could have been a Pharisee. Amen. Just because they were, just because he has some form of religiosity does not mean that he's fitted for heaven. You will die and go to hell in religion just as much as you'll die and go to hell in wickedness. Amen. And if the study of the life of the Pharisees and others in the Bible are any indication, you can be just as wicked as a religious person as you would be as a heathen person. And I say heathen in terms of outside of the nation of Israel in the terms of the scriptures. Here the Bible says that he says and he cried and said, Father Abraham. That word father means that he is declaring that he is part of Abraham's family. And when I say that, I'm not talking about his immediate family. I'm talking about his ancestry, his descendants. He is calling him the progenitor of his particular race. This man is a Jewish individual. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Notice verse 25, Abraham's response. But Abraham said, son. This response is the exact opposite of what this rich man just said to Abraham. The rich man called Abraham father and Abraham as a father looks at him and calls him son. In other words, descendant, child of my posterity, son. And I'm amazed here as well. Anytime I read in the scriptures the word son in this manner, the emotion that no doubt is behind it. I believe that this very conversation would have broken the heart of his father Abraham. Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Look at verse number 27 with me tonight. Let's read verse 26. And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can, neither can they pass to us. That would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, this is the rich man again, I pray thee, therefore, Father, see that? 
says it again. Every time he addresses Abraham, he addresses him with this term of reverence and respect in regard to their relationship together. Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. In other words, that's clear that Abraham's not his father, but it's someone down in his ancestry. Look at verse 28. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they also come to this place of torment. Look at verse 29. The Bible, the Bible says, Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, Abraham without reservation speaks to this rich man concerning Moses and the prophets. He does not describe who they are. He does not describe their importance, but he supposes upon the fact that this rich man already knows how important the writings of Moses are. That this rich man already knows how important the writings. And by the way, that is talking about the writings, not the individuals, but the writings of the prophets. He supposes that this rich man already understands how important the writings of, the Moses, of Moses and the prophets are. Amen. By the way, somebody would have that kind of knowledge. Amen. No doubt has been trained in the Jewish religion. The next verse says this, verse 30, and he said, unto, and he said Nay, Father Abraham. He does it again. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, he echoes the same sentiment of verse 29. Abraham does. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. In verse 31, Abraham supposes this rich man understands not only the prestige and the power and the prominence of the writings of Moses and the prophets, but yet he will understand the persuading capabilities of the writings of Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets in this day is what would comprise what we would call the word of God, the Bible. In other words, what he's saying is, is if the Bible cannot persuade your loved ones. Amen. If I did send someone from the dead, they would not be persuaded. You and I need to understand the persuading power of the word of God that we hold. Amen. When someone, amen, as you and I, takes the word of God, whether it be from the pages of our Bible and the pages that uh, are uh, that comprise between the two lids of the Bible or whether it be pieces of the word of God that come uh, in between the two covers of a gospel track, amen, however, or a, or a New Testament or a John and Romans, amen, that will pass out to a sinner, amen, if you're gonna win a soul to God, you must realize that it will first take the word of God, amen, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen. And if we have a piece of the word of God, that's enough of the power of God on that writing to save the most low down sinner. Amen. That ever would be or ever could be. And we know that because the word of God came into the life of the apostle Paul and Paul himself said on the inspiration of God with God's amen that he was the chief of sinners. It's the worst to ever live. God's already saved the worst. Amen. 
He's a, the worst sinner that ever lived, ever could live, is already in heaven today. What kind of promise does that give to you and I? What that's here this morning? What kind of promise does that give to those that we'll give the gospel to? There is no one too bad to be saved because the worst one to ever live has already been saved and is already with the Lord. The power of the Word of God is seen here when we give money to missions and to missionaries. Amen. And they are taking the Word of God to an area that needs the Word of God, which, by the way, is everywhere. It's anywhere. If a missionary is going, amen, let me say this. You say, well, preacher, why do we uh, give uh, money to missionaries here in America? Why do we give money to missionaries at other parts of the world? Amen. It's because right here in this area is where you and I are supposed to be missionaries. Where God has put us. Amen. But then there are times where God will call people, amen, and I believe that the people that he calls are always the best servants he has. Now, I understand there may be somebody that signs up to be a missionary, so-called, because they want to go on a vacation. There's some of those. It gives all the other missionaries, Miss Maria, her family's missionaries, gives all the other missionaries a bad rap at times because most missionaries in places are seen as moochinaries just coming in trying to get as much as they can off of the churches. But I'll say this, by and large, you will not find that to be the case. God calls and sends out the very best in his churches. Amen. That's why when God calls, amen, somebody to go somewhere else and do a service for him, amen, it always breaks a pastor's heart because God doesn't call the ones a pastor wants to leave the church. Somehow they love to say ones that God calls are the best servants he has, the most faithful that he has. And if God calls me, and I pray that God will call people to be missionaries and to be servants of the Lord and raise up our young people and raise up from our congregation mighty servants of the cross. But if he does that, he'll do it with his best. He'll do it with his most faithful. And I, I, if you want God to use you in a mighty way, you don't you do not say, well, when God calls, I'll get I'll be better and I'll get better. I'll say this, if that's your heart, God will never call you to do anything more than to stay in your local church. But until you get to the place where you are doing the absolute best that you can for the honor and the glory of God, right where he's planted you, right where he's put your life, right where the town that he's brought you to, the community that he's put you in, the place of service that he's put you in, the house of worship that he's put you in, the church house, amen, that he's put, the, the local church body that he's put you in, until you're willing to do your best with that, God will never call you to do more. One of the last things I'll ever do is call a missionary here to present, knowingly at least, to present their work here when they have not been a faithful servant in their local church. Because you'll never expect them to do any more out from underneath the supervision of their man of God than you could expect them to do while they are under the supervision of their man of God. Amen and amen. God calls his best out 
to do a work for him. Amen. And we see that and we know that. Amen. But when we consider that, we must be, we must consider the fact, amen, that if God is going to do that with our church and in our missions program, we have got to realize, amen, that the, the word of God has power and it is effectual where we are doing a work for God and where God may send some others, amen, that are not where we are but are going to be called to go to places where we are not called to go to do a work for God. And you know who they will encounter when they get there? Not only wicked heathens. Not only people who have absolutely lives filled, have absolutely filled their life with debauchery. You'll find those in any church, the ministry over the years of any church, any mission field, any work for God. You'll find those Sinners that need to be met at the bottom, amen, that need to have, as Jude says, for those that go to reach them, the soul winner to save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. We'll have those. But you know who you'll probably encounter more in your ministry than anybody else? More in your work for God than anybody else? Those who seem relatively virtuous but are still unredeemed. Those that have religion in their life, but are still unredeemed, unconverted, unsaved. Amen. And they will trust in their religion and the comfort, supposed comfort, that it brings them all the way to a Christless eternity and damnation in hell. One of the, one of the hardest things to break free of of chains that are dragging people to hell is the ch- the rotten chain of religion. Yes, if you can if you can reach a religious soul, God has used you in a mighty way and God no doubt had to be the one to do the work yes, because we can't do it in and of ourselves. Lastly, I'll give you this one this morning I have to be done. This rich man how he went to hell, we see. He went to hell relatively virtuous. He went to hell religiously. But then lastly, I'll say this, and this ought to strike fear in all of us when it comes to our mission to be soul winners, when it comes to our obligation to be a part of God's mission work through our local churches, and even at times to be uh, to, to take those mission trips to other places, to go not only where we're put physically, but to go other places that maybe the Lord opens up a door for you to be a witness and a missionary somewhere else. Uh, this strikes fear in me. Not only did he go to hell relatively virtuously and religiously, but he went to hell rapidly. Notice what the Bible says here in verse 23. The Bible says, well, let's go back up to verse number 22, and it came to pass. And by the way, let me say this. For every man, woman, boy, or girl, this result will always come to pass in your life. These bodies are not meant to last forever. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Let me say this before I mention my point any further for just a moment. Do you see that this end result of his life, this death, occurred to both the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich? Death has no, has no preference to your status in life. It'll come your way guaranteed Every time, unless God 
comes to get us in the rapture. Amen. Those of us that are saved, saved or lost, rich or poor, black or white or any other ethnicity in the world, whatever you may claim as your descriptive moniker, death comes for all. And this text is a testimony to that. It came to pass. Verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. Notice verse 23, and in hell he lift up his eyes. Notice this word, being in torments. I've told you before that one of the reasons why I believe this is a real account is because of the word lift there in verse 23. It's a present tense word. It is not lifted. If you hear a preacher say that, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, he changed the scripture. The Bible said he lift up his eyes. The reason is he lifted it that day and he's still doing so today. It's the only way to keep this text accurate with the historical reality that exists today. The Bible says this, and in hell. In other words, from the moment that he died, he was in hell. Amen. The text tells us that. It alludes to the fact that he left his existence here and immediately discovered himself with an existence in hell. The Bible also says this, talked about he was, he was, he, li- he lift up his eyes being in torment. That is a present state of existing. So when the Bible says in hell, it is continuing the thought from his death. He's immediately in hell. He closed his eyes in this world and opened them in that world. The eyes which re- the, the eyes of what remains of his physical body as far as in the grave were still clothed in death in the grave from his burial that the text no doubt we believe would be a luxurious burial. But in his death, the body's eyes were closed. But the eyes of his uh, of his uh, soul were remained open forever open conscious alert and aware of all that was taking place in hell around him that's another message for another day out of this passage but it should amen it should it should drive us and motivate us to reach souls for Christ not only when we consider that this place exists but we consider about those that go in there when they get there they are just as conscious as they've ever been. His eyes are wide open, Brother Tommy. The Bible tells us what he feels. The Bible tells us what he experiences. He is forever conscious. There is a message in that about the consciousness of the dearly departed. But here we see that he is conscious of all that is taking place in his new forever home. The Bible says he is in hell, leaving his consciousness from this world and entering into an immediate consciousness in eternity. And then being in hell, the word being is described by Webster as a present tense participle and is defined as existing in a certain state. In other words, this rich man, when he closed his eyes in death, forsook being in the world that he had known during his lifetime and forsook being in all the luxury that he had come to know and come to know and is now entered into a new reality for his existence. He is now being his present existence used to be one of treasure but now it is one of torments. Amen. This speaks to us of how rapidly one is relocated into the place of their eternity. You listen to me this morning. Concerning maybe yourself, if you are not a Christian this morning, or those that you know and love, if you are saved and maybe and hopefully have a burden for, 
Maybe the message might motivate you for them. Not only those you know, but those around the world by way of missions. When it comes to hell, those people that arrive there, not only are they fully conscious when they get there, but when someone dies in this life, contrary to what the scoffers and the mockers may say, they never cease to be. I used to, I don't know whether it was my pastor or Dr. Ed McAbee that used to say this statement often. A lot of times my pastor quoted his pastor, Dr. Matthew, so they don't know where it came from originally. But I used to hear this from men that invested in me a lot. There was a day where you were not, but there will never be a day where you will not be. When we think about those that we know that are lost, let's keep that in mind. There was a day where they were not. That little baby that my wife's holding back there that I've been holding some this morning, taking some opportunity today to do that, I don't get to do it as much as she does. Amen. So I take what I can give. Amen. But I'll say this, that little baby that was born 12 days ago for the time where God allowed her to be put in her mother's womb and to be existing, there was a day where she did not exist. But from that moment where God implanted her, even in the smallest form of who she was in her mother's womb, from that very moment on, there would never be a day amazing grace of just would not be. Those people that we know that are lost, they'll never cease to exist. Death is not the end for them. And you and I are the only people that are saved by the grace of God. We're the only people. Those of us that are saved are the only people that truly have any answers for them. Truly have any hope to offer them. Not only those in our life, but those all over the world, the answer is still the same. Salvation is not in a place, not in prestige. It's not in prominence. It's not in our, our, our financial portfolio. But salvation, redemption, freedom from sin, uh, heaven, amen, whatever you want to call what we want at the end of it all, everything that anybody would ever want in life is found not in all those things, but it's found in a person. And that person's name is Jesus. And I hope you know Him this morning. And if you don't, I'd love for you to let me have the opportunity to open up this King James Bible and show you how you can know Him today to where you don't have to go to this awful place, but as you can enjoy that place of comfort that we talked about where Jesus will meet you with open arms and you'll enjoy Him for all of eternity. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com.